Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. Today we've got a special encore presentation of an interview with Garrett Graff. He's author of Raven Rock, a new book about the federal government's plans to cope with the end of the world. Doomsday aficionados will recognize that as the uh, as the bomber music in Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove and how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb, which is appropriate enough because we have an author with us of a new book about doomsday planning, Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. By Garrett Graff. Garrett, how you doing? I'm good. Uplifting now, title. Uplifting title. Absolutely. Now, you are the man to ask, is there a mineshaft gap? For all intents and purposes, the U.S. actually spent years worrying about w- whether there was, in fact, a mineshaft gap. And one of the very strange moments uh, that I chronicle in this book is the effort in the 1950s by cave explorers and the Boy Scouts <laughs> to go out and map the caves of America with the expectation that that is where the American population would relocate during a nuclear strike. Peace through spelunking. Peace through spelunking. So now, you know, you are one of the essential Washingtonians, having been editor of Washingtonian magazine by definition, but a man about town. And uh, yet halfway through writing this book about doomsday preparation, you packed up from Washington and moved to Vermont. I'm, I'm wondering if we should be worried, those of us who are left behind. Uh, it was purely coincidental, I promise, except that, uh, yes, Washington should be very, very worried. And, and this is sort of part of what has been interesting about the way that these plans and this doomsday preparations, which the government technically calls the continuity of government planning, that these continuity very, of government plans... comforting. Exactly. Continuity is a good thing. It is. It, and it's something that we are all in favor of. Uh, but ever since 9-11, a very big focus of these continuity of government plans has been the idea that Washington could disappear in any given day leaving almost the entire rest of the United States intact? And how does the U.S. government begin to reconstitute itself if everyone within a three- or five-mile radius of Washington uh, is destroyed? And part of that is getting some people to Raven Rock. Raven Rock being the title of the book, what is Raven Rock? Raven Rock is the bunker outside uh, Camp David in Pennsylvania, just over the Pennsylvania-Maryland line, that would serve as the relocation site for the Pentagon and the U.S. military. And it's a massive facility, a hollowed-out mountain, uh, Raven Rock Mountain, obviously, and would hold uh, upwards of 5,000 people. It's a facility that got its start in the late 1940s and early 1950s 
and then was actually expanded dramatically in the years after 9-11 and today uh, is undergoing all sorts of various communications and engineering upgrades uh, as well as, uh, and this is our our Pentagon uh, and where we should be very proud, winning environmental design awards. It's lead certified doomsday doomsday planning. (laughs) That makes me feel so good because, of course, once the nuclear winter sets in, We'll we'll have to worry about the lead certification. Does that mean that that you won't be able to get sort of hot water from the sink in the bathroom because it's lead certified? They they have these massive underground reservoirs uh, inside Raven Rock, uh, both for engineering purposes and for drinking water purposes, and and it's sort of this very funny uh, complex. There are several of these scattered around Washington. Raven Rock is the primary one for the Pentagon, and then there's another one in Virginia called Mount Weather that's for the president and the executive branch. But they have, they're their own cities. They have fire departments, police departments, and even restaurants and bars within them. Bars. Tell me about the bars. The, the bar uh, at uh, Mount Weather is called the Balloon Shed Lounge. And it's a uh, it's a nod to where that facility got its start, which was as a National Weather Service observatory that used to send weather balloons skyward uh, into uh, into the atmosphere. And it's, was it's good the, to have a, a bar where it's the name is derived from getting high as a kite. Exactly, and, and there is sort of this funny theme of alcohol that runs through many of these. Uh, doomsday plans where the congressional bunker, which, uh, as you know, Eric, was at the Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia, kept a, uh, a, a an actual stock of bourbon during the Cold War for members of Congress that they swore was just to help wean any alcoholic congressman who may show up after doomsday. Right, because after doomsday, you need alcohol less than you did in your everyday life. should have just been... We've got a big stock of booze because everybody will be dead except for those in the bunker, and at which point there won't be anything left to do but booze. Indeed. So so how were people supposed to get to these bunkers in the first place? So the, the amazing thing is that these plans are actually all still in existence today. And there are landing zones all over Washington uh, where helicopters will swoop down. Uh, with just a few minutes' notice and evacuate uh, officials uh, who are pre-designated. And the landing zones range from the Pentagon to the Ellipse by the White House to the track and field, uh, athletic fields at American University. And these uh, these people would be shuttled off in these helicopters to these bunkers, but also to, and and I was, was fascinated by this, during the Cold War, this whole mass of other command centers. You know, there were naval ships at sea that would serve as uh, floating command posts for the president. There were armored trains. There were actually in the 1980s uh, and up to the present day, there are mobile tractor-trailer convoys that would set off across the country ready to serve as a command post for nuclear war. So you can just imagine in the moments before the the Soviet uh, or now Russian or North Korean missiles hit, all of these truckers heading out onto the open road across the United States. 
And you say there's something called a doomsday plane. What's the doomsday plane? So the doomsday plane, it's actually four of them. There are four of these 747s that are kept today at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska. And they are kept, uh, one of them is kept on alert 24 hours a day, ready to evacuate the president and basically allow him to command nuclear war from the sky. And this was, uh, if they couldn't get the president to Raven Rock or to Mount Weather during the Cold War, the goal was to get him aboard these planes, uh, which were called the Night Watch planes. Now, these planes, if they're in Nebraska, how is the president supposed to get on them? So the president is supposed to get uh, aboard Air Force, or sorry, uh, get aboard Marine One the somewhere, helicopter. the helicopter, and then the helicopter will fly somewhere and rendezvous with one of these night watch planes, and then the president will have basically three days up in the air where he can command a nuclear war uh, before the plane will have to land. Now, what kind of drills do they do to say, you know, the president's in the Oval Office, we have to get him aboard Air Force One and in the, in the air to be getting to then the doomsday plane? So during the Cold War, one of these doomsday night watch planes was actually kept on alert at Andrews Air Force Base. So they would run these drills uh, throughout the, you know, from the 1960s on up to, uh, you know, the 1990s, known as silver dollar drills. That was the code name for them, where, you know, an alarm would go off at the White House and someone playing the president would go out to the South Lawn, wait for a helicopter to land, evacuate the president, take him to uh, to Andrews Air Force Base, and then the plane would take off immediately. And the goal was actually to do that in just 15 minutes, which was the length of time, the minimum length of time that we would have warning-wise for a missile strike on Washington. And we, we really would have 15 minutes if a Soviet boomer submarine came up off the East Coast and launched its uh, payload? So you would actually have uh, slightly less than 15 minutes under those circumstances. But one of the things I was actually fascinated by in my research was that for most of the Cold War, the expectation of American war planners was actually that the Soviets had smuggled atomic bombs into their embassy in Washington and the U.N. consulate in New York. That was a mighty big pouch, diplomatic mail pouch. It, well, and, and that was part of what uh, what was uh, the fear of this, is people think of these diplomatic pouches that come into a country uh, and aren't available to be inspected as just a little briefcase. But they can actually be any size. And so you would see during the Cold War these Russians bringing in you know, these car-sized packages that they would say were diplomatic pouches. Uh, and John F. Kennedy uh, confided to a journalist in the 1960s uh, that his his belief and what he had been told by the Pentagon was that about three blocks north of the White House in the uh, then the Soviet embassy, now the Russian ambassador's residence here in Washington, there was an atomic bomb in the attic. Is is that the building that's right here on 16th Street? It, yes, you Eric would never even know when the bomb went off. I could look out my window here. The confab window looks out on the back of the uh, Soviet, former Soviet, uh, Russian resident, ambassador's residence. So, yep. and and uh, so maybe still in the attic there. 
And, and, and of course, today, the Soviet ambassador is radioactive for a different reason in Washington. <laughs> so, but this, this would suggest that it would be a very bad idea to choose now as the moment to open a North Korean embassy in, in Washington. Or at least you would want to limit the size of the diplomatic pouches that they could be bringing in. So how was everybody else supposed to get to wherever they were supposed to be going? I mean, you know, did did the congressional staff, did they have a helicopter to get them? Would they even know where to go to get on the helicopter? Uh, so this was one of the, the f- uh, again, funny stories. I, I mean, these plans were conceived in this deadly serious uh, attempt to plan for Armageddon during the Cold War. But when you look at them with this sort of... Uh, light of history upon them. Many of these are actually, I think, quite silly stories to tell today. And one of them is that actually, despite this congressional bunker being built at the Greenbrier in West Virginia, members of Congress were not actually told where their bunker was. And the idea was (laughs) that after a nuclear attack, uh, they were, congressmen and senators were supposed to find their local FBI field office where the FBI agents would be waiting with these sealed envelopes that were kept as part of the FBI's war plans at each field office across the country. And in these sealed letters would be driving directions uh, to get to the Greenbrier bunker so in West have, Virginia. So you, if, you were, if you were Barry Goldwater, you'd have to get to Arizona and get to the, the FBI field office in Phoenix – to get the envelope that would tell you to give you driving directions to West Virginia. Yeah. If, if Congress was in session in Washington, there was going to be a special train that was going to whisk members of Congress uh, actually straight from Union Station on to uh, the Greenbrier, which runs right by the railroad tracks uh, in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. Uh, but if if it was during congressional recess, you would wait until the bombs had exploded. So continuity then, of government is relying on Amtrak. This it, is truly frightening. It, yes, it, it was. Uh, it, a, a lot of these plans seem, uh, to put it mildly, uh, optimistic. How much of government was supposed to survive? Um, I take it we'd have... Um, somebody playing president, whether it was the president himself or a designated survivor, and and uh, and those rules got awfully complicated. Um, but uh, you know, would we have uh, the IRS? I assume I assume that uh, really the last function of government to go would be the IRS. And, and every federal agency had some role after a nuclear attack. The National Park Service was actually going to be who set up the refugee camps in national parks around the country because the idea was the national parks were unlikely to be targeted by nuclear bombs. Well, and, you know, actually park rangers being about the most capable um, and likable people in the federal government, that's the one hopeful sign. Yep. And the post office would be the agency that was in charge of basically figuring out who was still alive in the United States because the post office is who keeps track of where people live and would be in charge of trying to figure out, you know, who had ended up in refugee camps and where to follow the mail. And then... That's the the Kevin Costner movie that no one saw. That turns out (laughs) to have had a lot more truth than any of us would have imagined. And then, of course, as, as you mentioned, you do have the IRS and the IRS and the U.S. Treasury put a tremendous amount of effort in the Cold War into thinking through exactly 
how to levy taxes uh, in the wake of a nuclear attack. And you'll be very pleased to know that they decided that they would not tax you on what your wealth or property was prior to the nuclear attack. So if my house has been obliterated by a nuclear blast... You would get a tax break. <laughs> there's, there's good news in, the, in doomsday planning after all. Garrett Graff, author of Raven Rock... Get it at your local bookstore or on Amazon while you can still read it before the bomb hits. Garrett, thanks so much for joining us on the Confab. My pleasure, Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. You can get all our podcasts at weeklystandard.com. Or better yet, subscribe at iTunes or Google Play. Go to either of those fine services and search for Weekly Standard. That way you'll never miss any of our podcasts, including the Crystal Clear Podcast with Bill Crystal every Friday and the Confab with me, Eric Felton, every weekend. Catch you next time.